Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terrorism and extreme violence, so you may find some of the following materials upsetting. Together, we'll analyze the realities of violent extremism in West Africa and delve into the local, regional, and international efforts and initiatives to prevent and counter violent extremism. In today's episode, we'll explore the question, who's tackling terror online? Joining me as we unpack this question are Mustafa Ayad, who's the executive director of Middle East, Africa, and Asia at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, ISD, and Dr. Obudu Nemaka, who's a lecturer at Veritas University, Abuja. So let's get started. So in previous episodes, we have extensively spoken about Daesh and Iswap's propaganda, the different mediums that they use and how they spread their word. So we know that there's a growth of social media in Africa, which has had several benefits, but it's also led to equipping terrorist groups with a tool of recruitment and propaganda. Can you tell us a bit more about the Daesh official and unofficial media ecosystem on the web? Perhaps, Mustafa, you'd like us to start us off. Of course. The Islamic State both official and unofficial ecosystems are vast across the open web. So you've got to think about this in terms of there are standalone platforms. Part of that are, and when I say standalone platforms, I'm referring to websites. Um, And then a part of that sort of ecosystem are also archive sites. A part of that ecosystem, similarly, are decentralized chat or messaging platforms that can be used to support those functions. Beyond that, you have the exploitation of mainstream social media platforms. So your big names like your Facebook, your Twitter, your uh, YouTube. And supporting all those functions are encrypted messaging applications such as Telegram, WhatsApp, and others that that function as a backbone for disseminating content, for having private conversations, for essentially playing a sort of feeder role and similarly a recruitment role in in the online space. All of these ecosystems are sort of their own universes. Some are affiliated with branded outlets that we know are part of the central Islamic State media outlet brands, so to speak. And then there are others that are supporter-led that play a big role in terms of translation. So, for instance, if I'm thinking about this standalone website sort of element of things, I'm, I'm thinking about a website that translates into multiple languages. So about 32 different languages that exist and is a supporter led initiative that essentially channels all the energies of official content and functions as a translation hub. So they're putting out content in Hassa, they're putting out content in Swahili, Somali, you name it. And they function essentially in order to spread that content. If we're thinking about a, a well-known sort of Islamic State phrase, uh, remaining and expanding, both of these sort of unofficial ecosystems as well as official ecosystems play that role online. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Mustafa. And, and it's striking just how easy it is for extremists to kind of spread their propaganda, you know, as you mentioned, in, in official and unofficial uh, mediums. It would be really great to hear more about the type of content that is shared by unofficial supporters. What are they exposed to? Um, maybe, Amaka, you want to kick us off in terms of the type of content you've seen um, that is you know, exposed to unofficial supporters. So um, responding to the question, and um, from what uh, Mustafa said, yes, I agree that we have the, they have the online version and the offline version that they use in propagating 
there are messages in the media ecosystem. Now, some of such products, content that they use in propagating their messages, they are, they are done on wall posters, on billboards, they are done on brochures, little pamphlets that are readable, easy to, to share amongst people. And that's for the official medium. Now, for the unofficial one, they use private accounts of individuals who have large following. Such accounts of those individuals are seen as influencers. And whatever those influencers post on their pages, they gather more followers and then they propagate their messages then use it to get to people and do what they want to do with them. So those are some of the media that they use in propagating their messages. So we know that, and we've heard from senior government security officials who have claimed that Iswap and Daesh are recruiting and radicalizing vulnerable youth, you know, through social media and online means. So turning to their official propaganda, can you tell us more about Daesh's media infrastructure? You know, specifically, how is ISWAP propaganda or content from West Africa being reported? Okay, so for their infrastructure... Uh, they skillfully exploit WhatsApp. They use WhatsApp. You know, WhatsApp is a is an app that allows for secret information where a third party is not able to get the information that is being shared to persons. They also make use of Telegram to organize and carry out their criminal activities, especially in West Africa. I'm speaking for my region at the moment. Now, so... This is what ISWAP uses as um, a means to propagate the propaganda or their content across West Africa. Mustafa, what about you? You've also been seeing this from different perspectives. What are some of the uh, trends you're seeing in terms of the usage for spreading the propaganda, but also its purpose for recruitment? Yeah, so there's definitely a sort of under-researched element in regards to how Salafi jihadist groups in general, in other contexts, use both open source technology, as well as the existing sort of social media and messaging uh, platforms to spread content and ultimately get around moderation. One of those really key elements is setting up news organization brands. So things that are dubbed, for instance, breaking news. And what it does is essentially take official Islamic State or in some instances, Al-Qaeda content. And I think it's really important to talk about Al-Qaeda as well, not just the Islamic State, because overall, the selfie jihadist ecosystem, especially online, is thriving based on a number of sort of moderation and evasion techniques and strategies that they've developed over years, right, of being chased off of various platforms by both technology companies, as well as governments, as well as civil society. And so what they'll do is essentially set up these news brands, independent news, right, that function. And I'm saying that with quotes. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't see my air quotes because this is a podcast. <laughs> but uh, overall, they function as a means to launder Islamic State propaganda as news. So in an effect, what they are doing is building off of state disinformation tactics by setting up news brands to essentially peddle that content out. What this does is get around what are noted sort of uh, official outlets and brands that are recognized by 
tech companies and their sort of hash database. If you you understand what hashing is, it's essentially it's a big database that takes the unique thumbprints of various different uh, uh, pieces of terrorist content, terrorist branded material that is struck off their platforms and essentially allows an AI system to find those same fingerprints on a piece of content across the expanse of their platform. And they also get around moderation or manual moderation in that you have to be really online to understand what's happening in these ecosystems and how they're ultimately adapting to the methods to get them off of various platforms. So if I think about websites, for instance, one of the most prominent Islamic State websites was dubbed Muslim News, Akhbar al-Muslimin. And by branding something like as benign as Muslim News, at one point, when you were searching on Google for Akhbar al-Muslimin, which is Muslim news in Arabic, it was the first hit on Google out of 17.5 million hits, an Islamic State news site. So it was effective. These sort of tactics have been built up for years and continue to be built up in context outside of the West until our focus is really to dive deep into these ecosystems to understand how they are ultimately more adept at the internet than governments are, and in frankly some cases civil society are, that they are going to thrive. It does not mean that they are succeeding. It means that they are thriving in an ecosystem where in a lot of cases, they're already speaking to the faithful, the believers, so to speak. Right. So ultimately, this is a problem. It's under researched. There isn't, frankly, a good enough mapping of how these sort of evasion techniques and these groups are targeting Africa specifically, whether it's West Africa, whether it's East Africa, for instance, where you have an ongoing feud online actually happening between Al-Shabaab and a Islamic state in Wilayat Somal beef happening. So all of this is happening online and unbeknownst to a lot of people is really uh, um, has a series of really robust learnings for those either trying to counteract against these sort of uh, learnings and adaptations or ultimately uh, produce counter narratives that would be effective because they are swift and adept at also switching the narrative. No, Masafa, thank you. You raised a lot of important points, right? And I, I think one of the ones that I want us to perhaps unpack a bit further is that, as you rightfully said, we focused here so far on the conversation around Daesh and Iswa, but also we cannot you know, omit Al-Qaeda or other affiliations uh, of violent extremist groups on the continent. So which leads me to... One of my next questions, which is, so as you said, this is under-researched on the continent. More information is needed. Given this space and also given the country, the different parts of the region, and for now, because we're focusing on West Africa and the Sahel, are we seeing any differences in terms of the online activity, you know, from Nigeria in comparison to other countries within the Lake Chad Basin? What kind of continent? What 
in 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 what languages uh, it would be more uh, it would be great for the listeners to understand a bit of the complexity of this online space specifically focus on um the sahel and the west africa region dr amaka maybe you want to start us off i'm majorly in the sahel and lake chad basin they use the internet the internet is the powerful tool is the tool that they use to deliver their messages to radicalize to recruit and to incite attacks and plan their operations. However, for Nigeria, they also use ideological incubation. That's what I like to call it, through mainstreaming of certain aspects of its ideology. Then how do they do this? For example, they invite only mentoring circles, like that is little circles or little groups, and through social media group pages, for which for them, it's a normal indicator of Islamic State involvement. So ordinarily, on the face value, it looks like they are only discussing Islamic religious beliefs. However, those little mentoring groups that they gather and they put up on social media are used to actually disseminate information that has to do with their propaganda. And because it entirely looks obscured, people would not really have so much interest in it unless you click, you start to follow, and then you get to find out that it is not the ordinary mentoring group to get people's faith to build up, but it is a group to help them recruit and radicalize people. Now, these virtual seminars or seminaries, as I call them, they operate in little groups and they send out their scholarly jihadist spectrums or religious messages. And they encourage discussions and understanding around those areas. After doing this, they go ahead to do what we call peer-to-peer mentoring. And this peer-to-peer mentoring also involves them doing a follow-up mechanism. Uh, there are new recruits doing what they're supposed to do when it comes to the content that they receive or they get to read on the social media platform. So they do a follow-up on such things that they do on the internet. So that's it from me. No, thank you. And and I think it's really important, like even though we're speaking about the online space, you know, and, and some of these contexts, like as you rightfully said, there is a lot happening equally offline that is then taken online. We touched upon the the, the ecosystem and the infrastructure. Um, so it'd be really great to ensure that listeners from this episode who um, are exposed to these types of content. Could you briefly explain, uh, Mustafa, how can they report this to relevant bodies? What actions can one take if you are exposed to such content? First of all, you have to know where this content is and who it's coming, who's coming into contact with it. So, and, and it's also by platform, right? Depending on what platform you're looking at, you're going to be looking at sort of different countering strategies or alternative messaging strategies, however you want to look at that. Uh, because ultimately, I think something that 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 the good doctor pointed out is that a lot of the radicalization or sort of messaging is happening through mainstream sources. So more sort of established Salafi preachers, as well as adherents, Salafi jihadists, uh, for that matter, that point out or use narratives such as Tawheed, for instance. So in unification through violence or offensive 
I'm talking about jihad, I'm also making a very specific reference to the smaller jihad, not the larger jihad, which is the larger jihad being the, the struggle within oneself versus the fight, so to speak, or, or, or the actual physical confrontation, which is the smaller jihad. Um, and it's being laundered through these sort of these mainstream or I would just say more accessible sources through sort of these tropes that run across the extremist spectrum. And that is a key element of this. And I think a key element in Africa as a whole, in terms of specifically West Africa, we see online are a lot of narratives that are specifically around the inequalities or sort of a sectarian view of Muslims are being debased globally or regionally. And there is a need to resurrect sort of a old vanguard, so to speak, that can, in effect, fight back and be the sort of unifying force that Muslims in West Africa need. And these sort of narratives need to be countered through effective messaging that ultimately takes on the concerns of Muslims or the the Muslim populations in certain countries. And that narrative needs to be similarly supported by on-the-ground action, whether by government or non-government sort of organizations and groups. Because alternative narrative for that matter, is not going to make a big difference if there is no sort of ground action, so to speak, to back it up. Until we get that right, we're not going to get the counter alternative messaging right. Um, Dr. Amaka, do you want to add anything um, to what Mustafa has said from your perspective? However, I want to add that we cannot take away the family component from all of this. We can also not take away the church or the mosque component from all of this. Neither can we take away the school component from all of this. Now, why do I say this? It's because we know that the family unit is where parents have control over their, their children, more of youth in this case, because their target here is more of youth. So if parents are able to monitor their children, because we know that Daesh, um, Iswab, Boko Haram, and it's like, they do more of peer-to-peer mentoring and other medium they use. So if parents can monitor their children, they're able to see what they do at that time. And then in the mosque, those um Islamic sects, those groups, terrorist groups, they preach certain things to, to their targets or their recruits. Now, if the mosque can actually preach against what those sects are saying, they're able to counter whatever messages that is being put out there. And the youths who are the targets are told the right thing so they don't go to do what is wrong per se. Now for schools, now we know that schools are formating sectors of schools are molding grounds. So aside um, doing the normal teaching and learning, they could also incorporate talks that has to do with speaking against terrorism. So when students or when pupils or when youths are being spoken to, they are able to, to do the right thing. And this can be followed up regularly. So I'm looking at the countermeasures from the traditional perspective. When these on-the-ground works are done, it will be a little bit easier to tackle the terror online. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think that there's so much complementarity in what you both mentioned about the, you know, the importance of the actions on the ground. 
but also uh, the measures of addressing it online, but equally as well, the measures that are available in addressing it offline through other credible actors. Um, so as we end up uh, coming to the end of the episode, you know, the episode really states the question, and I stated this when we started on who's tackling terror online. Um, do you have any final recommendations, learnings, or key takeaways that you want the listeners um, uh, to depart with before we conclude um, of this episode? Final thoughts on my part is the job of tackling terrorism or terror online. It's everybody's job. So it's a thing of looking out and changing the narrative when it comes to terror online. Thank you. Mustafa? I would uh, I would add, just to build off of this, is it's the fact that, I mean, if we're talking about the proliferation of, of propaganda or recruitment material or recruiting on primary platforms, then we're really talking about a job that is being undermined by a lack of nuanced moderation lack of language, lack of expertise in these regions that a lot of tech companies can really use at this given time. However, there needs to be pressure on those tech platforms in order for them to really do their jobs. In a lot of places, these platforms, your Facebook or your Twitters or your YouTubes are synonymous with the internet or are in fact the internet. You get Facebook on a SIM card, for instance, free or Facebook access. And that sort of needs to be addressed in terms of the moderation moderators that are in those contexts need to be well steeped in what is happening both on the ground, culturally, socially, politically, as well as what's happening in these terrorist ecosystems to get around moderation techniques or moderation uh, tactics and strategies, so to speak. So if we're talking about mainstream platforms, a lot more needs to be done on the moderation front. If we're talking about the narratives aspect of things, I really think we should be promoting concepts of community building and thinking about what that means, again, in the cultural, social, and political atmosphere in which those communities are ultimately trying to survive. If there are grievances that exist in a society, whether it's perceived or real, there will be fracture points. And then until we address those grievance points effectively, we won't be able to stem this tie. No, absolutely. And and thank you so much, actually, for emphasizing uh, not only this importance of the partnership, but this pressure and, and demand uh, for these private sector actors uh, to also take part in it. We know much has been done in other countries, but that um, continued partnership is really important. Um, so, Mustafa, Dr. Amaka, thank you both so much for your valuable time. It is much appreciated. And thank you for taking part on this episode. In the next episode, we'll be exploring the topic of leaving ISWAP and the pathway out of terrorism. Asking the question, is there a way out? Please follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Fatma Ahmed. Until next time, goodbye.